0: Well, hello again. It is a joy to welcome you to our teaching time. We are again in the Gospel of John, and today we turn a bit of a corner and getting into a new chapter, chapter 14. This is a continuation of where we've been the last several weeks as we've been looking at Jesus' encounter with his disciples in the upper room at the inauguration of the Lord's Supper. So as we look at this passage today, there are several verses that we will see this week and next especially that are some of the most often quoted verses in all of the Bible. And as a result of that, the topic or the title for the message is The Comfort of Christ. So we are all well aware of how difficult life can be. Our lives are filled with unknown hardships and difficulties that come our way, many of which we have no choice or control over, but nonetheless we experience them and they create for us great distress. Now it's not a matter of if you will experience these hardships, it's a matter of when you experience experience them, and when you do, for how long will you have to experience that? Now scripture doesn't dodge this reality. It doesn't put it off to the side as if it's an, an obscure reality, but it deals with it directly. For example, we would read in Job 14:1, man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Then, in Acts 14:22, it says, "Through many diff- tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God." And then again, in John 16:33, Jesus says, "In the world you will have tribulation." So again, it's not a matter of if, but a matter of when we will experience these hardships and these difficulties. But just as the Bible promises us that we will have difficult times, the Bible also promises us comfort in our relationship with Him. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-5 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted. Just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. And so I believe that in many respects, it is this passage that begins to communicate to the disciples and to us the kind of comfort that Jesus intends to provide for those who believe in him. While it is highly unlikely that the disciples had not experienced hardship in their life prior to walking with Christ, he was intentionally preparing preparing them for the most difficult time of their life, since they had left their old life behind and began to walk with him, now as a way of connection. Remember this is Thursday evening. Jesus has inaugurated the lord 's Supper. He has already washed the feet of the disciples. Prior to that, the disciples were busy discussing amongst themselves who would have the highest and the greatest positions within his kingdom. It is in this meal that Jesus announces that one of them is going to betray him, alluding to Judas. He also has announced his imminent death and his imminent departure from them. He has told Peter specifically that he was going to deny him three times. And so collectively, the lives of the disciples were in great despair. Their heads were spinning with this information. They didn't really understand how they were to process what it was they were hearing. Their lives were about to be shattered because they had given up everything to become a follower of Christ. And just a few days earlier, at the triumphal entry, when all of Jerusalem came out to meet Jesus, they, like many other Jews, were expecting Jesus to inaugurate his earthly kingdom and for this kingdom to have no end. They left everything to follow him, expected his kingdom to be initiated in the immediacy of their lives, and yet Jesus is telling them that he is about to die and that He is going to leave them. Now this passage will run all the way from verse 1 to verse 14, but instead of having one incredibly long message, we'll break this up into two shorter passages of Scripture. So today we'll look at chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, and then next week we'll look at verses 7 through 14. So let's look together at God's Word in John 14, 1 through 6. Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going." verse 5 Thomas said to him Lord we do not know where you are going how do we know the way and Jesus said to him I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father but through me so in these first 3 excuse me first 6 verses we're going to look at 3 keys to experiencing the comfort of Christ and next week we'll look at the remaining 3 so number 1 in our outline is we are to trust in his presence If we are to experience the comfort that Christ gives to us, then we begin by trusting in His presence. In verse 1, we'll see two very clear commands given to us by Jesus Himself. So number one in command is this, stop being troubled. Now verse 1a says, do not let your heart be troubled. You know, when you read that verse and you take a moment to think about what Jesus is saying... It seems to me that the phrase do not let indicates that we have a choice and how we are to feel when we face great hardship. Jesus says, do not let or do not allow your heart to be troubled. So the question is, how do we usually feel when we are confronted with something that is very difficult, very unwelcome, something that we understand it is going to be incredibly difficult for us to navigate through. Do we feel overwhelmed? Do we feel incredibly fearful? Do we have a sense of hopelessness? Do we feel defeated? We are usually flooded with a variety of emotion at the beginning of this great hardship or difficulty and almost none of them are of any good. Now this does not minimize the reality of the distress It does not measure its severity, but it instructs us in how we are to act, how we are to choose to respond in the face of great hardship. Do not let your heart be troubled. Now, in the immediate context of Jesus and his disciples, they are in full-blown distress mode. Jesus has told them again that He is going to die, that He was leaving them, and now, not generically speaking to the Jews, but speaking to them, He says that where I am going, you cannot now come. They couldn't follow Him, and where it was He was going. Now, all that they believed about Jesus, all the love and trust that they had in Him, their willingness to lay everything down in order to follow Him, seemingly evaporates because Jesus is going away and they cannot come. One of them was going to betray him and Peter was going to deny him. I would imagine that this would be the greatest distress that any of them had ever faced in their lives and most certainly in the time that they have been following Christ for these three years. I believe that for the disciples, it does not get any worse than this. He tells them that they are not to be troubled. That word trouble means to stir up. It means significant emotional and spiritual turmoil. It's the same word that is used to describe Jesus being troubled about His impending death on the cross, Jesus being troubled in spirit at the reality of His betrayer being one of His own. Not that He didn't know that, but as He thinks about that and contemplates what that means. Jesus being troubled about His death is the same kind of trouble that Jesus is instructing His disciples to not be consumed by. Jesus is saying that in the face of this incredible spiritual and emotional difficulty that you are about to face, do not allow your heart to become overwhelmed or intimidated by this situation. Can you relate to that? Can you relate to being overwhelmed by a circumstance you find yourself in? Do you find yourself being intimidated by the severity of the hardship that is standing at your door? Well, in all of life's hardships, in all of life's unwanted and unwelcome circumstances, I believe that we can follow what Jesus has told us to do, not allow our heart to be overwhelmed. Instead, we follow the second, second command, and that is to believe in Me. Verse 1b, Believe in God. Believe also in Me. Do not be overwhelmed by your circumstance Believe in me. Now, this isn't a call to salvation. We already know that from John 13, verses 10 and 11, Jesus has indicated that all of them were clean except for Judas. And when Jesus declared them to be clean, it indicates that they had already entered into a saving relationship with him. So here, the word believe means to have ongoing trust. Just as you believe in Me for your salvation, just as you have believed in Me for your eternity, continue to believe in My presence for your emotional and your spiritual needs. Now this again is a very clear declaration of His deity. He is saying that just as you have believed in the Father, For these things, for your salvation, for your eternity, believe also in Me for these same things. Continue to believe in Me so that you will not be overwhelmed by your circumstances, but have this ongoing belief in My presence which is always going to be with you. Now, Jesus doesn't need to be physically present in order to provide comfort for us. We know that post-resurrection. We know that because the Holy Spirit has been given to us. The, the, The disciples don't understand this. The disciples don't understand the role or the work of the Holy Spirit that is going to come. So they are overwhelmed by this reality that Jesus is going to go away from them. That they will be physically separated from Him. And this creates incredible hardship in their lives. Now, as we'll look at later on in this chapter, Jesus promises them, and this is the promise that we cling to, and that is His abiding presence through the person of the Holy Spirit. We read in John 14, verses 16 and 17, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will abide in you. Now, obviously, when Jesus speaks these words a little bit later in the chapter, they don't have an aha revelation in their understanding. It will take after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit before they begin to understand Jesus is abiding presence with them, even though He isn't physically present. We can stop being overwhelmed by our circumstances because He is with us. We aren't alone. We aren't forgotten. Jesus said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. He will say later on in this chapter that I will not leave you as orphans. So we don't have to allow our hardships, our difficulties, and what are seemingly overwhelming overwhelming circumstances to blind us of His abiding presence in us. Do not be overwhelmed. Instead have ongoing belief in Me. Now, number two in our outline, not only are we to trust in His presence, we are to trust in His preparation. We'll see three different things in this preparation. Number one, we're going to see the place. Jesus talks about preparation of a place. We see this in verse 2. He says, In My Father's house, are many dwelling places. So in this preparation Jesus points the disciples and us towards eternity and the face of extreme difficulty. I believe it's consistent with the New Testament as a whole, the Bible as a whole, and that is this, that we are to be spiritually minded, we are to have our thoughts Pointed towards heaven, not in the physical world that we live in. And this is exactly what Jesus does here. He points His disciples towards eternity. Their comfort is found in the truth that they won't be separated from Him permanently. When Jesus is going to die on the cross and be buried, it isn't the end. Jesus will be raised from the dead He will make a very brief ascension into heaven. He will come back and appear to them over a period of 40 days before He makes His final ascension. And although they don't understand anything about that, Jesus is still telling them that even though you will experience separation from Me, it is not going to be permanent. Jesus is going to make preparation in the Father's house. The Father's house is heaven. Now, heaven is called many things in the Scripture. In Hebrews 11.16, it is called a country because of its massive size. In Hebrews 12.22, it is called a city due to its large number of inhabitants. In 2 Timothy 4.18, it's called a kingdom because God is its king. In Luke 23.43, Jesus calls it paradise because of its incredible beauty. Here... Jesus calls heaven His Father's house. So in His Father's house, in God's house, there are many dwelling places. Dwelling places literally means rooms that are added on. Now the King James Version uses the term mansions, which isn't really one of the most accurate ways to translate that word. Now, we've got to remember that in the context of what Jesus is saying, and the reality that this is a first century word usage, and it's used in the context of Jewish culture and practice, and not in modern Western civilization, it means a dwelling place. So, a dwelling place means a room. So, what was common in Israel's history and practice in the current culture is that when a child was married, and that new family was going to move into the father's house, he would build on a room to his existing house for this new family unit to live in. Kids would get married, they would have their own children, and so new rooms would be added on to the father's house. That room would be the new dwelling place for the growth of the family as they still lived under the father's Roof. This understanding speaks of the incredible intimate setting that exists with the Father and His children. Heaven isn't going to be a giant tract of mansions spread out over all of the landscape of heaven, but it is a singular giant dwelling, God's house, which will be made up of many, many rooms and God's children will live with the Father in these rooms as a part of God's house. Revelation 21.3 speaks of this intimate nature. It says, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. Despite the portrayal of God dwelling in a house, We must be careful not to visualize heaven or God's house like some earth-like place. It's very different from what our minds would naturally go to because we're talking about something that is confined by our time and space space. Limitation. All that we think is confined in some way by this time-space limitation. So we have to be very careful that we don't project our understanding of heaven too specifically so that it means something that God would not intend. So Jesus makes reference of the many rooms that are going to be in heaven that are a part of God's house or God's dwelling place. And so we see, number one, the place. Number two, we see the work. We see this in the second part of verse 2. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Now Jesus is telling them the truth. He has never lied to them. And he is telling them where he is going and what he is going to do when he gets there. He is going to make ready their room in God's house. He will go and prepare their dwelling place in the Father's house. Now, he will not go and get busy and build the room, nor will he decorate it lavishly for them. But it is in his going that the preparation is completed. It is through the death and resurrection that this dwelling place is made ready in God's house. And so He must go to the cross in order for the room to be prepared as He goes back to His place, which is in heaven itself. So this should bring great comfort to the disciples knowing that Jesus is making preparation for them And, number three, He gives them this great assurance. Verse 3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So what Jesus is saying is, You are going to join Me. He assures them that not only is He leaving them to prepare a place for them, But he's telling them the truth, that I am going away to make this preparation, and I will come back again, and when I do, then you will always be with me. Now when we read this verse, it sounds somewhat apocalyptic, and in some respects, it does relate to the second coming of Christ. We don't don't need to read too much into that because in the context of this passage, Jesus is telling them that he is leaving, that his separation isn't permanent, that he's going to come back for them, and then they will be able to be with him forever. So this isn't about explaining his second coming as much as it is about assuring them that the separation is only going to be temporary. So just as the separation the disciples are facing isn't permanent, neither is the difficulty that we face. Now we are not in the context of Jesus being before us and us having followed Him for some three and a half years and Him telling us that He's going to leave, but don't worry about it, I'm going to come back for you. We need to remember, we need to focus our minds on this reality. Whatever it is that we experience in this world, in this life, No matter how severe, no matter how difficult, no matter how overwhelming it might appear to us, it is only temporary. We have to be spiritually minded in order to have that kind of a perspective. Again, this does not intend to minimize what it is we experience, nor does it measure the severity, but it is a way for us to be able to experience the comfort of Christ as we take great comfort in not only His presence with us, but the preparation that He has made for us so that when we leave this temporary world, we will be ushered into an incredible eternity in the Father's house with the Lord Jesus forever and forever and forever. We are to focus on that reality. Now, number three in our outline is we are to trust in his proclamation. We see this in verse 4. And you know the way where I am going. Now, the Greek literally reads, and where I go, you know the way. Now, the NIV and the ESV do a better job of expressing what the Greek says and what Jesus intended than is the New American Standard that I read from. The ESV says, and you know the way to where I am going. The NIV says, you know the way to the place where I am going. So the way is the pathway. In Jesus' dialogue with the disciples, He has some expectation that at this point, on the eve of His death, that they know how to get to heaven. He is asserting that they know how to follow Him. He's been showing them the way during the entirety of His ministry, which all of them have been a part of. If they follow that way, then they will get to where He is going. The pathway encompasses who He is and all that He has taught. Now, it's very obvious from the passage of Scripture that Thomas didn't understand this and very likely neither did any of the other disciples. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Well, Thomas is saying that we don't know where you are going. So if we don't know where you are going, how are we going to know how to get there? Well, Jesus has already told them where he's going, hasn't he? He says, I am going to my Father's house. I am going to heaven. I'm going to prepare a place for you. But Thomas and the others are looking for a road map to a literal, physical location that Jesus is going to go to. And if they don't have that map, then they don't know how they are going to get there. So they have missed the point. Jesus is stressing relationship to Him and the Father as the way to get to where Jesus is going. Jesus isn't talking about a literal physical location. He's talking about a spiritual location that involves a spiritual journey that Jesus expects they already understand And how how they are to get there. So the destination is heaven, and there's only way one there's only one way to get there. He is the way. This is exactly why Jesus says in verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. When Thomas says, We don't know where you're going, we don't know how to get there, Jesus says I am the way. This is the sixth ego of my statement Jesus makes about Himself where He makes one of these great I am declarations, which in the Old Testament was the name of God, the name that a Jew would not write or even say. And this is what Jesus is saying about Himself. He's saying, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. In the previous... I am statements. Jesus said in John 6.35 that I am the bread of life. In John 8.12, I am the light of the world. In John 10.7, I am the door of the sheep. In John 10.11, I am the good shepherd. In John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. And so on this occasion... On the eve of what is the most distressing experience the disciples will ever know, Jesus joins together these three incredibly accurate words that summarize all of Jesus' mission to the world. Jesus alone is the way to God, and you know the way. He alone is the truth of God, and He alone possesses the life of God. These are the things that Jesus has taught over and over and over in their hearing. These are lessons that Jesus has exhibited in His ministry, in His miracles, in His private teaching sessions with them. The Bible teaches that God may be approached exclusively through Jesus, His one and only Son. Now this proclamation is offensive to those who believe that there are many paths to God. We live in a world that does not tolerate exclusivity. You have to be open-minded. There can't only be one way. There has to be many ways. And I'm sorry, this just does not work when we're talking about access to the Father. If there were many paths to God, then Jesus's words are not true. If there are many paths to God, then Jesus's death on the cross was unnecessary. And if there are many paths to God, then we have placed our only hope in something that is false. There are not many paths to God. There is but one way, and Jesus has declared that He is that way. The Bible reveals Jesus as the incarnate Word, the one and the only One who reveals the Father. In John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 and verse 14, we read these words, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God." And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now you'll note that the Word there is capitalized, meaning it's a personal pronoun for God. And then in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So if God has no communication with man, apart from His Word, capital Word, then it stands to reason that man has no avenue to God apart from that Word. Think about it. If God is going to communicate with man through some kind of a word, then the only way that man can communicate back to God is through that same Word. And this is why John declares in the opening verses of His Gospel, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus' mission was to make known the Word of God as the way to the Father. He is that Word. He is that way. And that is exactly what His ministry has accomplished. Now, the early church taught Jesus as the only way. And it was the reason that in the book of Acts, early Christianity was referred to as the way. Because Jesus is the only way to God. He is the only way of salvation. And as a result of that, He is, the, he is our source of comfort. Now, there are many things in the world that are designed to give man comfort. We believe a nice house, a nice car, good food, a nice vacation... All of these things bring some level of comfort to our lives. But friend, when our lives are up against severe difficulty, great distress, and we feel overwhelmed by this thing in our life, I can promise you the only true comfort we are going to find is in our relationship with God through Jesus, His Son. We are to trust in His presence. He is always with us. And that should bring us incredible comfort. We are to trust in His preparation. That He has prepared a dwelling place for us in the Father's house. And that one day we will be with Him for all eternity. What we face is only temporary. That should bring us significant comfort. We are to trust in His proclamation. That He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. We don't have to succumb to substitutes or to something that is inferior. He has opened the pathway of God to us. And as we have placed our faith in Him, we are following Him on that pathway to the Father. And one day, we will be ushered into eternity. We are to focus on these truths. And as we do that, We will find great comfort regardless of the severity of the difficulty that we face in our life. Jesus says, do not allow your heart to be overwhelmed. Keep trusting in me. I have gone to prepare a place for you. And because I am the truth, I will not lie to you. I will come back to you so that you can join me. We know the way because He is the way, and we have placed our faith in the truth of God's Word, in the truth of Jesus being the one and only begotten of the Father, and because of that, we can know the comfort of Christ. Would you pray with me, please? Well, Father, we give you thanks for this passage. We thank you for what it has already said, and we give you thanks in advance for what we will look at next week and through all of this farewell discourse that you have given to us as your children. God, I pray that regardless of what it is we face in our life, we would find the comfort that you provide in our union with you. We know, Father, that it is through relationship, not religion. It is through obedience, not worldly substitutes, that we are able to find the true measure of what you provide for us in our relationship with you. God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts in the depth of our need, whether it be financial difficulty or relational strain or health concerns or just a a great concern about the state of our culture and our country and this this world in general. Father, that we would not be overwhelmed by such things, but we would have an ongoing belief in you, the one and only God, the sovereign God who reigns over the universe that you have created, that we are safe in your hands. God, I pray that that would bring comfort to us even now as we pray. We give you thanks for your word, for its accuracy, its truth, the way that it meets our every need. Help us to live by it. Help us to long for it. And help us to live it out in such a way that others would see you in us. We give you thanks and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.